Hello! Welcome to Stump Death and Taxes. This is Meep, also known as Mary Pat Campbell, and I'm a life-slash-annuity actuary, not a pension actuary, but I do know a lot about pensions, and today I'm going to be talking about the Central States Pension Fund, which just got a nice little cash donation, as it were, uh, a little bit of a cash bailout from the federal government, and I want to talk about that today. Let me give you the news item from Pensions and Investments. Biden announces $36 billion in federal aid for struggling central states Teamsters plan. President Joe Biden on Thursday, that's last Thursday, announced that the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation has approved $36 billion in federal assistance to shore up a massive union multi-employer pension plan facing steep cuts. Teamsters Central States Southeast and Southwest Areas Pension Fund, Chicago, will receive the funds under the Special Financial Assistance Program. The program, created by the American Rescue Plan Act that Democrats passed in March 2021, was designed to shore up struggling multi-employer pension plans through 2051. The PBGC estimates the total cost of the program will range from $74 billion to $91 billion. The Central States Pension Fund covers more than 350,000 union workers and retirees who are facing estimated benefit reductions of roughly 60% in the next few years, according to a White House news release. The pension plan had a funding ratio of 18%, with $57.2 billion in projected benefit obligations as of January 1st, 2021, according to the plan's most recent Form 5500 filing. As of December 31st, 2021, the plan had $10.1 billion in assets, the filing showed. The PBGC approved the first SFA, that's the Special Financial Assistance, application in December 2021, and since then has awarded funds to 36 other struggling multi-employer plans. But Thursday's announcement is by far the largest. As of December 1st, the PBGC had approved just over $8.9 billion in SFA funds to cover roughly 193,000 workers, retirees, and beneficiaries. So that was the news item. And uh, to get into some of the stats, uh, John Burry of Burry Pensions, uh, who uh, often blogs these multi-employer pension news, he looked at the central state's form 5500. So that's the annual form, these multi-employer pensions and its other employee benefits uh, plans, systems, etc. have to file annually. And this is under something called ERISA, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, Central states, this is not really new news. It is news in that they just approved this application. The uh, central states plan had applied for this SFA program the moment they were eligible, more or less, back in August of this year, 2022. And this was a foregone conclusion, by the way. 
pretty much the reason this special financial assistance uh, was in the American Rescue Plan. It has nothing to do with the pandemic, of course. There had been multiple attempts to do this multi-employer pension bailout uh, over the past decade, I would say. there had It had taken multiple forms, and today I just want to talk a little bit about the history of the protection of pensions, of private pensions in the U.S., and it actually goes back as far as my own lifetime to ERISA. Um, so who's ERISA? <laughs> Aris is not a person. Like, is this your ex? <laughs> you know, that this is, I, I do want to talk about this. Um, and when you're in a particular field, it doesn't matter what the field is, uh, people get their acronyms and will use it in the jargon. And we're so used to using it. And ERISA, we'll just say ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, which stands for the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, which started this whole thing going. And I was born in 1974 myself. So what is this about? And this is the primary law that started it all off. And there, of course, have been updates to this since 1974. I'm like, I'm not that old. Um that really started the protection for defined benefit pensions, but not only that, all sorts of employee benefits. To begin with, in general, there are no employee benefits that are really mandated before Obamacare or the ACA was started. Um, the uh, ERISA was just that if you make certain promises to your employees or if you offer certain benefits to employees, you have to be fair about it. You have to do certain things to guarantee those benefits. You have to have fiduciary duties, fiduciary standards, and all sorts of things. What had spurred this and this is why I want to say a lot of times people will call defined benefit pensions, quote, traditional, and I'm trying to do the scare quotes and try not to put too much of a sneer into it, traditional pensions where, um, you know, you're promised a certain amount of pension benefits upon retiring that is usually keyed off of, say, your number of years that you worked and something related to your final salary. Well, the reason I'm kind of sneering at that as a traditional pension is that those kinds of pensions had a boom-bust aspect to them because for the longest time throughout history, and I could go back to the Roman Empire, and I'm not doing that right now, uh, because military pensions often took this form, um, they usually didn't pre-fund these pensions and often they ran out of money to pay for these pensions and the taxpayers would revolt and then there went the leaders and there went the money to pay for the military that had supported the prior leaders and then you had a military re revolt and military coup and yada yada and here's our new dictator. Okay, um, <laughs> so let's go to something a little more mundane and corporation-sponsored pensions, not military pensions. And what had happened is that you had some pretty, uh, 
let's just say, notorious pension plan failures in the U.S. in like the 1950s or 1960s. Looking at the Wikipedia article here about ERISA in 1961, and I'm quoting right now, U.S. President John F. Kennedy created the President's Committee on Corporate Pension Plans. So the movement for pension reform gained some momentum when the Studebaker Corporation, an automobile manufacturer, closed its plant in 1963. Its pension plan was so poorly funded that Studebaker could not afford to provide all employees with their pensions. The company created a program in which 3,000 workers who had reached the retirement age of 60 received full pension benefits, 4,000 workers aged 40 to 59 who had 10 years with Studebaker received lump sum payments valued at roughly 15% of the actuarial value of their pension benefits, and the remaining 2,900 workers received nothing. So they were trying to prevent something like that from happening again, and that was just the most notorious failure. That was not, of course, the only failure. And then um, there was another one here in 1963. Senator John L. McClellan of Arkansas began an investigation through the Permanent Investigation Senate Subcommittee into labor leader George Barash, alleging misuse and diversion of $4 million of union benefit funds. So now we've got a fiduciary duty issue going on and fraud and yada, yada. Um I mean, but think about that. It's 1961, 1963, then in 1972, NBC broadcast an hour-long TV special, Pensions, The Broken Promise. And think of how long this took. This took over a decade before they got something done. Um, And it was under ERISA that this semi-quasi-private corp PBGC that guarantees these private pensions got created. And what PBGC does is it takes over pension plans when, you know, the money runs out, essentially. And there's two types of private pension plans they cover, such as with the Studebaker Corporation, a single employer plan. So you have a pension plan that covers employees, all of one employer. And this has always been recognized as a more fragile situation because if it's a single employer, they can go bankrupt and, of course, not be there to cover a pension plan and take that over. So that's the single employer program under PBGC. That's one aspect of PBGC. That's not what central states is. I'm not talking about the single employer plan or single employer program today. And actually that one has been through um, a series of reforms and the single employer program for the PBGC is actually in a pretty strong position today. However, you may note that not many companies offer these traditional defined benefit uh, pensions. And that's because these are very, very expensive promises to make. That's why they don't exist. Uh, And that's why it's in public pensions, because they aren't covered by ERISA. They aren't covered by the PBGC, and they're not required to recognize how expensive those promises are. Well, let's go over to the multi-employer pension plans. Now, they actually tend to be more stressed 
partly because they've not been through the waves of reform that the single employer plans were, and partly because there was the assumption that they didn't need the same protections or all the protections that the single employer plans are. These multi-employer pension uh, plans are the ones that we call the union pensions. And that's like you're a member of a union and then your union has a pension benefit set up so that you could work at any number of employers that hire the union members. So think of you're a member of the UAW. So you're an auto worker and there's a standard pension plan that you have as a UAW member. And it doesn't matter if you work for, say, Ford or Toyota, even though (laughs) do they have UAW members, but let's just pretend they do. Um, And you could work at any UAW plant, as it were, any any car manufacturer, and then they would make contributions or you would make contributions as an employee to this union fund over the years, and you wouldn't be stuck to any particular employer. And the concept was because you weren't dependent on any specific company, but you were in the union. And also as being part of a union, you had your union to be able to look out for your interests as a union member. Perhaps you don't need as strong external support from the PBGC and PBGC oversight. That again, I'm just saying this was the concept that you wouldn't need it as much as a single employer plan. Well, guess what? Um, <laughs> So what happens is, of course, the multi-employer pensions, and it's not all multi-employer pensions, of course, but a lot of them have been very distressed. And what happened is entire industries, unionized industries, forget about a single employer going bankrupt, you had entire unionized industries going under, say, like the steel industry in the United States, or you might notice I mentioned the UAW and auto workers. Well, you had the various Japanese imports, and then the Japanese manufacturers came to the U.S., and then they set up factories like in South Carolina, where unionization is not, you know, as widespread, and they are right to work states, meaning you are not required to be a union member to work anywhere. So that is what undercuts some of these union plans. Uh, They had globalization. They had that giant sucking sound from NAFTA. There's all sorts of reasons that uh, these union plans got undercut. Okay, that's enough of a history uh, lesson in general of ERISA. So now I'm jumping 40 years. So I went from... 1974 to 2014. Yeah, that's quite the chump. To the Klein-Miller Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act of 2014. And I do need to explain what happens to multi-employer plans when they fail. And what do I mean by fail? I mean, they run completely out of assets. And that's how they often failed. And the reason that happens, it's an asset death spiral. You don't have a lot of active new workers coming in, not enough new contributions, too many retirees and cash going out. 
and uh, then it gets, quote, put to the PBGC. Over the years, by the way, uh, these pension plans are paying risk premiums to the PBGC. I will not talk about how adequate these risk premiums are, but then they get put to the PBGC, at which point the participants get essentially the guaranteed amounts uh, under the PBGC. And the guaranteed amounts for their pensions under the multi-employer plan are very low. Under the single employer plan, they're actually pretty nice because they needed higher protections, they thought, for the single employer plan. The premiums, and this is why I said everything was more expensive on the single employer side, and this is why so many employers uh, just said, okay, we're going to do 401ks now because they don't have to guarantee much with regards to 401ks. And there are guarantees with 401ks. It's just they don't guarantee uh, retirement income. Uh, there are certain things they do guarantee on 401ks and like they won't steal your money. And you're like, what, they have to guarantee that? I'm like, yes, you would be surprised. Um that, yeah, there are people in federal prison for having stolen their employees 401k money. Oh, you didn't know that? Okay, well, I'm not talking about that today. Um, in any case, um, on the multi-employer side, some multi-employer plans had gone under. And when you end up with the guaranteed amount, it's like Social Security levels of income, which is very low, if you know anything about that. It's actually lower than that, if I remember correctly. I was looking at some of those numbers. I'm like, ah, it's tens of thousands of dollars per year. It's not a lot of money. Um, and you're not, when you heard that article of they were looking at 60% cuts to benefits, yeah, it was pretty deep. And I think those 60% cuts may have been under this Klein-Miller Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act of 2014, because what this one was uh, saying is, do we really have to wait for all the assets to go away before we make some changes? Because if we can cut benefits, maybe not so harshly um, to the guaranteed amounts, but just a little bit. And cutting 60% is better than cutting, say, 90% or 80%. Um, if we can cut it, you know, just if we can cut them 40%, we cut them less than to the bone, and we can make the pension plans sustain themselves with less drastic cuts than if they completely failed and then can keep going on, um, why don't we do that? And that's what this Klein-Miller Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act of 2014 was. Okay. And a few of the pension plans, and I think about 18 pension plans, did go through this process. And central states put something forward in 2016, which was rejected for the cuts not being deep enough. Actually, there were all sorts of problems with it. But looking at it, um, the Treasury Department, when they looked at the application, they said, this is not going to be sustainable. You have an assumption set that we don't consider realistic for the cuts. You need to cut deeper for this to be sustainable, and then you can do it. At the time... I wrote in a blog 
that I guess the plan is to fail because this the treasury said you need to cut more for this to be sustainable. Okay. But instead of taking the advice of treasury to redo the plan, they just threw their hands up in the air and said, no, we're not going to cut more. And so what was going to happen in default was default. And this is what I wrote, the plan, failure. So there's no current cut to the plan, which means everybody keeps getting their full benefit until the money runs out, at which point the benefits get drastically reduced, much worse than what was proposed by Nyhan. That's the person who had shown the projections and put it in front of Treasury. I think if one did an investigation, one will find most of what causes pensions to fail is not enough money put in early enough. While sometimes there's malfeasance in the asset management, in general, one finds that plans had been shortchanged on contributions for decades by the time they fail, and that this shortchanging was completely legal, imprudent, but legal. And here's the part where I was wrong. There will be no bailouts. This all goes to say there will be no bailouts. Mish agrees. That's Mike Shedlock. Also, this should be a signal to public employees and retirees in some places like Illinois and New Jersey, which Mish and Mark Glennon point out. So Mark Glennon is a person at Wirepoints who writes about Illinois. Yes, it's sad that retirees will get heavily slashed in retirement when they have little flexibility to increase their income. But that being said, didn't stop Detroit pensions from being cut. That should have been a signal as well. Detroit got no bailout. Central states will get no bailout. Neither will Illinois, nor New Jersey, nor California, nor Connecticut, nor dot, 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 will get bailouts. There's simply not enough money to fulfill all these promises, so they will be defaulted on. Well, I was wrong about central states, and that was back in May 2016. And central states did get their bailout. They got $36 billion, billion dollars with a B, and that is enough to get them to about 80% funded, valued where the liabilities are valued at 2.43% as their valuation rate. So everyone who is freaking out now about central states, Teamsters plan getting $36 billion, well, that decision was ultimately made in March 2021. That's when the bailout decision was made. Not now. It was always going to happen under the rules set forth in the bill in the American Rescue Plan uh, Act of March 2021. It was going to happen because as far back as 2015, 2014, 2012, there was a projection that the central state's Teamsters plan was going to run out of assets by 2025. And it's still, it has never changed that it was going to run out of assets by 2025. And when it was going to be put on the PBGC, it would have wiped out all of the assets of the PBGC in the multi-employer program for the PBGC. It was going to have to get bailed out. The PBGC was going to have to get bailed out, no matter what. It had nothing to do with the pandemic. This has been going on for over a decade. That it was thrown in a supposed pandemic stimulus bill. Well, a whole bunch of stuff was thrown in there that had nothing to do with the pandemic. Okay, and they they took their advantage. The question is, of course, will they run into trouble again? 
And that's something that you need to think about. It seems to me they may. What Wall Street Journal wrote in their editorial on this bailout over the weekend was they thought, yes, they will. So this is what they wrote. Okay, and this is a couple paragraphs from their editorial. Biden bails out the Teamsters, and this is towards the end. Central states overseers proposed modest pension cuts that would have spared nearly half the participants. So that's what I was talking about. But progressives howled, and the Obama administration rejected the reforms. At their first opportunity, Democrats rushed through a bailout. Last year's union uh, COVID relief bill lets the PBGC make lump sum payments to keep some sick 200 multi-employer plans solvent through 2051 and fully restore benefits in the 18 plans that had cuts. And that's that Klein-Miller bill that I talked about from 2014. Notably, the law prohibits the PBGC from conditioning aid on governance reforms or funding rules, but it doesn't forbid benefit increases. So the failings that got these plans in trouble will continue and may lead to future bailouts. Government unions with underfunded pensions in New Jersey and Illinois will surely demand one too. So I'm not talking about the public pensions today. That'll be for a future episode. But talking about the central states Teamsters, there were prior versions, this American Rescue Plan or Rescue Act, whatever, the special financial assistance. There were prior versions of this kind of bailout that I had seen go by multiple times that had put in a variety of requirements that would prevent them from having to get bailed out again and again and again. However, with March 2021, you had the Biden administration, uh, you had Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House, and Chuck Schumer, of course, as the Senate Majority Leader. So Democrats, Democrats, Democrats. They may or may not have had some of the restrictions in the final bill because, of course, the Senate Majority was still a sliver and you had Joe Manchin and Chris, Kristen, or is it Kirsten, however she says her name, cinema, and some other people who may have balked at just, you know, throwing a hell of a lot of money without any strings attached. But maybe they would have been fined, fine with a no strings attached bailout. I don't know. A lot of money was getting sloshed around at the time. A lot of people are just not thinking back as far as March 2021. And their think pieces are coming out right now. And losing their minds. I'm like, well, what did you write back in March 2021? I know what I wrote. I was getting ticked off and, you know, having Charlton Heston on the beach with Lady Liberty's head sticking out. So you can see what my attitude was. I was not happy um, about that. I could see pain was coming because all of these trillions of dollars was just getting sloshed out with very little strings attached. And I was not Yeah, so we got inflation, we got all sorts of bad things coming out from the money printer going brr, and I can't roll my R's, sorry. In any case, um, so I hope it was worth it, Central States. I mean, Merry Christmas. You don't have to worry about your pension benefits getting cut in the next 30 years. However, if nothing is fixed, well, the demographics of the Central States Teamsters Fund does not look good. If you go to Burry's 
posts. So John Burry's post has um, the demographics of the central state's last form 5500 filing. And, you know, people are looking at the dollar amounts and the funded ratio and that kind of thing. But I'm going to point out to you the number of participants. So this is the 357,056 participants. And of those participants, the retirees are almost 190,000 of them. And then separated but entitled to benefits. So this means that they're not working and they're vested. So they can get retirement benefits when they finally get to retirement age, have enough years of service. That's 117,000, about 118,000. 117.5 thousand, but the number that are still working. So of the almost 360,000 participants, only 50,000 are still working. So think of those demographics. Those are the ones still making contributions to the pension fund. Now, central states was known to be a failing plan and part of their stress was the UP was UPS withdrawing from the plan. Um, who wants to participate in that? Now that they know that they have some security, perhaps they'll be able to attract people now, but maybe they won't. That's a question. Um, will they still have these bad demographics going forward? In which case, they'll have been bumped up to an 80% funding ratio, and then we'll start to see that funding ratio erode again. Um, but maybe if they can attract new participants, then perhaps they'll be able to maintain this good funding ratio and even increase it. So I wish them well. I hope they don't, you know, increase benefits or do other things that make this erode. Um, this is their chance to behave better now, and we'll see where that goes. So in the future, I will likely talk about the public pensions aspect. So we've had public pension bailouts past, pension bailouts present, and do we have pension bailouts yet to come? Well, this is not much of a Christmas carol, but we will see. And this has been Stump. Death and Taxes. Talk with y'all another time. Bye-bye.